0: Go ahead and please be seated. Our reading this morning is a little bit long, so we'll do that uh, seated together. I just want to add my welcome to the welcome given earlier. My name is Dan Warren. I'm one of the pastors here at CPC. I also want to welcome the Labantes who are visiting with us. Thank you for helping to lead us in music this morning. I know many of you know them from when they were here, members of CPC, and we're glad to have them visiting with us this morning. Uh, Take out your Bibles or your bulletins and turn to Acts chapter 15. Acts 15, we'll be looking at verses 1 through 35 this morning, though right now I'll only read 1 through 21. Acts 15, 1 through 21. This is God's word. But some men came down from Judea and were teaching the brothers, unless you are circumcised according to the custom of Moses, you cannot be saved. And after Paul and Barnabas had no small dissension and debate with them, And said it is necessary to circumcise them and to order them to keep the law of Moses. The apostles and the elders were gathered together to consider this matter. And after there had been much debate, Peter stood up and said to them, Brothers, you know that in the early days God made a choice among you, that by my mouth the Gentiles should hear the word of the gospel and believe. And God, who knows the heart, bore witness to them by giving them the Holy Spirit just as he did to us. "'After they finished speaking, James replied, "'Brothers, listen to me. "'Simeon has related how God first visited the Gentiles "'to take from them a people for his own name. "'And with this, the words of the prophets agree, "'just as it is written. "'After this I will return, "'and I will rebuild the tent of David that has fallen. "'I will rebuild its ruins, and I will restore it, and the remnant "'that the remnant of mankind may seek the Lord.' Let's end the reading of God's word. Let's pray together. Father, as our Savior prayed for those who follow him, sanctify us in the truth. Your word is truth. Show us Christ and his grace this morning, and by the power of that grace, transform us by the Holy Spirit. Conform us more and more after the image of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. We ask these things in the name of Christ. Amen. When the gospel gets twisted, uh, the church is in trouble. A twisted gospel troubles the church. And when I say the church is in trouble, I mean you're in trouble because you are the church. That's the first reason I wanted to look at Acts 15 with you this morning. Uh, In Acts 15, we see a twisted gospel troubling the church. And it's very likely that over the course of your Christian life, you will be drawn to dangerously wrong ways of thinking about following Jesus, to dangerously wrong understandings of the gospel. It's so important to know the gospel and to remember it and to be able to distinguish the true gospel from a false gospel, from false alternatives that, false alternatives that far, far from being good news, they actually bring us into bondage, into slavery. They're destructive and dangerous. Uh, The second reason I wanted to turn to Acts 15 is that here we find wisdom and principles according to which the church, particularly the leadership of the church, ought to seek the truth of Scripture when the gospel gets twisted. If a twisted gospel troubles the church, it's important to know and to understand the means by which Christ will fulfill his promise to build his church, his promise that the gates of hell will not prevail against it. Seeking the truth of Scripture sets the church straight. And the way that the church seeks scripture in Acts 15 gives us important principles for how the church ought to seek scripture today. So let me just put my cards on the table right now. I'm going to say that when I speak about this second reason for looking at Acts 15, I'm talking about church polity or church government. I know that can be a hard sell early on a Sunday morning, Maybe for some of you, that really floats your boat. You're really into all of the intricacies of church government in the church. And, you know, if that's you, great. For others, it's kind of like popping a balloon and all of the joy just lilts to the floor. You know, really, church government? How amazingly interesting. What a buzzkill. Piper, though, my daughter, she was actually in my study the other day, chewing, literally chewing on uh, one of my books on church polity. So she thinks that church polity is a tasty treat. But seriously, this is an important topic. Why is it so important to understand? If you want to keep on track following Jesus and understand how Jesus runs his church, how he gives us wisdom and means for setting things straight when doctrine and the gospel gets twisted, you need to understand this. You need to understand how Jesus brings this about in his church. You need to hear and to know about how Jesus runs his church, and you need to hear it more than once during a church membership class. Maybe you're new to the church. Maybe you're new to Presbyterianism, and you have no clue what that even means, and you wonder, what what does that mean to be a church that runs itself according to Presbyterian polity? Uh, If the gospel getting twisted is such a grave danger, if it's such a grave danger to your soul... Then you may ask yourself, what is the process by which the early church dealt with these first fights about the truth, with these first assaults on the true gospel? And are we applying those principles today as we seek to uphold the truth? So when you look at it like that, far from being a buzzkill, the way Jesus runs his church is something to cherish and to treasure. So let's look at these two things together in Acts 15. Two points this morning, really a problem and a solution. The problem is a twisted gospel troubles the church, and the solution is seeking the truth of Scripture sets the church straight. So first point, the twisted gospel troubles the church. When the gospel gets twisted, the church is in trouble. I want to ask a couple of questions as we look at this idea. First, how did the gospel get twisted then? Look again with me at Acts 15, verse 1. We read, But some men came down from Judea, And we're teaching the brothers, unless you are circumcised according to the custom of Moses, you cannot be saved. This was a mind-boggling moment here at the beginning of the New Testament church. In the early days, the church was mainly Jewish. The long-awaited Messiah, Jesus, had come. And many Jews were coming to Jesus, finding in Jesus the fulfillment of the Old Testament promises. But now, something unexpected was taking place. It shouldn't have been unexpected, and we'll consider that, but they were shocked. Paul and Barnabas have just finished their first missionary journey. And Gentiles, those outside of the Jewish community, those outside of the Old Covenant community of the people of God, they were coming to Jesus. Gentiles are coming to Jesus, and they're following this long-awaited Jewish Messiah. And it was really shaking things up. Who invited all these people who don't look like us? who don't talk like us, who don't follow our customs, who don't have the same religious heritage as us, who haven't been looking forward to the Messiah as we have. This was a big deal. This mind-boggling moment led to a grace-robbing message. In this confusing context, a false gospel had formed, and it went like this. Unless you are circumcised according to the custom of Moses, you cannot be saved. Circumcision was the, the membership mark, In the Old Covenant community, the teaching was essentially that you have to become a proselyte, become a convert to Judaism in order to receive the good news of the gospel and be saved. As if those outside of the pale of the Old Covenant community, those outside of Judaism, uh, were unable to come to Jesus, that they had no claim on the Jewish Messiah. Again, this is a seismic moment in the early church. Gentiles following Jesus, and it led to serious gospel error. In Galatians, which is part of the backstory uh, to Acts 15, Paul makes no bones about it. He says, if you preach unless you are circumcised according to the custom of Moses, you cannot be saved. If that's your gospel, then you are preaching a damnable false gospel. He says, anathema on such teaching and on such teachers. Let it be accursed. Strong words for a dangerous, dangerous doctrine. In fact, I just learned something this week. That phrase, makes no bones about it. We say that, but what does that actually mean? I just learned this week that it comes from 15th century England. Finding a problem with something was like finding a bone in the broth at dinner. Bad form, maybe they said. I don't know if they said that in 15th century England. We would say, zero stars, do not recommend. Paul was certainly upset to find that the gospel broth being served up to people he was reaching for Jesus had bones in it. There was hair in the soup. That's pretty gross, right? We all know that's gross. But it's disgusting, it's sickening when the gospel has something in it that shouldn't be there, that has no place in the gospel. Works of the law have no place in the gospel of free grace by faith in Jesus Christ. Paul writes in Galatians 2.16, we know that a person is not justified by works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ. So we also have believed in Jesus Christ In order to be justified by faith in Christ and not by works of the law. Because by works of the law, no one will be justified. He says it three times. He makes it crystal clear. There is no place for this in the gospel broth. This is the clear gospel broth. This is the gospel with no additions. What must you do to be saved? Put your faith in Jesus Christ. Believe in him who lived and died and was raised for your salvation. Gospel truth must be defended for the good of the church. Paul does this in Galatians. And it's the reason that he and Barnabas will go up to Jerusalem. They will go to Jerusalem. They're appointed for the task by the church in Antioch. They're going to put an end to this twisting of gospel truth. So that's how the gospel was being twisted then. But let's think about it in our historical moment. That's how it was twisted then. But how is the gospel twisted today? Well, there are many ways the gospel gets twisted today. Some maintain that the gospel doesn't entail a new way of life. Live however you want to. Easy, just believe. You're broken, but you're forgiven, and that's enough. If you want to get serious about Christianity, well, maybe later you can really get to work on that. But you're free in Christ, and that's enough. Don't weigh yourself down by trying to keep any of his commandments. But the gospel entails a new way of life. The great commission that Jesus gave the apostles, defining their mission in the world, it says, go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. Romans 6.4 says, we were buried therefore with him by baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. So, some maintain that the gospel doesn't entail a new way of life, but the good news of the gospel is that indeed it does give you newness of life and you are to walk in it. Some minimize the freedom from sin which the gospel provides. This view doesn't deny that we are called to follow God's commandments, but it minimizes the good news of the gospel by denying the freedom from sin which it provides. Does the good news of Jesus really leave us in bondage to some of our sinful desires with our only hope of freedom being when Jesus returns? Or does it break the chains of all kinds of sin, even in the present, as we pursue holiness in light of our redemption in Christ? Is our only hope for progress and holiness uh, when Jesus returns, or is there hope for progress and holiness today? Romans 6.17 says, Thanks be to God that you who were once slaves of sin... Have become obedient from the heart to the standard of teaching to which you were committed. The gospel breaks the chains of all kinds of sin. No perfection this side of glory. I'm sorry to disappoint you. But the Spirit enables you to make progress in becoming more and more conformed to the image of Christ. To become more and more holy in this life. The Spirit enables obedience from the heart to the standard of teaching which we receive in Scripture. So, some minimize the freedom from sin which the gospel provides. But the gospel gives freedom from sin to become obedient from the heart. Some moralize our standing before God by adding works to the gospel. That's the problem of Acts 15 and what it deals with specifically and quite clearly the danger of trying to contribute your own works and contribute your own works for acceptance before God rather than relying on free grace alone through faith in Jesus Christ. I think you can already uh, think of times in your life when you've been drawn to that, and it's a very dangerous place to be. You may not say in so many words, I believe I'm accepted by God because of my works. But man, on a good day, when you've just really done things right, you can feel so close to God, right? When you've really nailed it, you really haven't done much wrong, and you just feel so close to God, and then Comes along a day and you mess up royally. You just completely live in a way that that just, it's bad and you know it. And you think, man, God just does not want me. God doesn't want to be with me anymore. God doesn't accept me anymore. That's what this is. And it's a twisted gospel. It's no gospel at all. Some moralize our standing before God by adding works to the gospel, but the true gospel says it's by faith that we are secure in our standing before God. As you see, all of these various twisted versions of the gospel are serious trouble for the church. A twisted gospel troubles the church. So what needs to happen when the gospel gets twisted? How does the church set things straight? That's the second point, and it's the solution to this problem. Seeking the truth of Scripture sets the church straight. Paul and Barnabas, the embattled missionaries in Antioch, they couldn't settle the dispute that had arisen over the gospel, about this most fundamental truth of the Christian faith. They couldn't settle it alone. It wasn't for lack of trying. We read there was no small dispute and dissension in Antioch over this matter, but more needed to be done. The issue needed more hands on it. It needed more more eyes and hearts searching the scriptures together, a broader group to clarify this matter. So Paul and Barnabas are appointed to go to the apostles and elders in Jerusalem, As they make their way to Jerusalem, what are they doing? They're sharing as they go the stories of grace among the Gentiles, the stories of people who are coming to Jesus in unexpected places and regions and cities and towns, and people are encouraged. By the way, isn't that encouraging when we hear about how God is bringing people to Himself, especially when people are coming to Christ maybe in places we wouldn't expect to see it happening? It's very encouraging. But the problem Paul and Barnabas were battling there in Antioch followed them all the way to the assembly in Jerusalem. Even as they arrive in Jerusalem, we read, some believers who belonged to the party of the Pharisees rose up and said, it is necessary to circumcise them and to order them to keep the law of Moses. So the problem goes all the way to this reunion of leadership in Jerusalem. Let's ask the first question of this. Uh, How did the church seek the truth of the scripture then? Uh, in this first encounter with the twisted gospel. Well, first, the leaders of the church met together uh, to reason together about what was right. Luke tells us it was a long debate. We don't have the whole debate recorded, But this long debate was had in the presence of the church, and it's the apostles and the elders discussing the matter. That's who Paul and Barnabas were sent to meet with, and we see that uh, maybe three or four times in, in uh, in Acts 15, that it's the apostles and the elders discussing this. And they're trying to wrestle through the matter in light of Scripture. They're trying to come to a true understanding, a clear grasp of just how powerful and far-reaching this gospel upon which the church is founded, how powerful is this gospel really? Look with me at verses 7 through 11. We see first that Peter appeals to what God had done in the past. We see, after, after there had been much debate, Peter stood up and said to them, Brothers, you know that in the early days God made a choice among you. But we believe that we will be saved through the grace of the Lord Jesus just as they will. So Peter is not the apostle called to the Gentiles. That's Paul's mission. That's Paul's calling. But Peter was there when when the gospel was first delivered to the Gentiles. When the Spirit was first poured out on the Gentiles, he was sent to go and preach this message. He declared the good news to the Gentiles first, and God did a work among the Gentiles. Peter was there, he saw this. It took him a long time to process it. That's no excuse. And we read of in Galatians 2 when Paul opposed Peter to his face for being slow to understand it. We know here that Peter acknowledges that Paul was right when he says, why are you putting God to the test by placing a yoke on the neck of the disciples, burdening burdening them with keeping the law for salvation when we Jews know that that's an impossibility? It's a yoke we were never able to bear. He's acknowledging the point. Peter gets it. He's come around. He's come to a conclusion now, and his conclusion should be music to our ears. We believe that we will be saved through the grace of the Lord Jesus, just as they will, just as everyone will be, just as you will be. No works necessary. Sheer, undeserved, and surprisingly far-reaching grace for Jews and Gentiles. That includes people in a far-off place called Temecula, California. For the gospel is by grace through faith in Jesus Christ. So Peter appeals to what God had done in the past. Paul and Barnabas appeal to what God is doing in the present. They give the report from the field, and it's amazing. God is at work saving Gentiles right and left. Look at verse 12. And all the assembly fell silent, and they listened to Barnabas and Paul as they related what signs and wonders God had done through them among the Gentiles. It's undeniable that God is working beyond the Jewish people and bringing Gentiles to faith in Jesus. Then James, the brother of Jesus, who was a prominent leader in the church in Jerusalem, which was at one time the largest church, Antioch, the church that was founded after this first missionary journey. is now rivaling Jerusalem in size, but they're working together on this issue. James, he clinches the debate. He appeals not to what God had done in the past, which was fine, or what he is doing in the present, which is amazing and beautiful, but James appeals to what God has said. He appeals to Scripture, the final authority of the church. He appeals to Amos 9.11 specifically, seeking the truth of Scripture to set the church straight. Look at verse 13. After they finished speaking, James replied, Brothers, listen to me. James says all the prophets agree, but he goes specifically to Amos. And he's quoting from something called the Septuagint. It's the Greek translation of the Bible that the apostles would have been using in their ministries. And this translation really interprets the Hebrew verse in a way that clarifies the promise. Gentiles joining God's people was always part of the plan. His point is that in the resurrection and the ascension of Jesus, the subject of the first sermon, the first Christian sermon at Pentecost. At at that point, Jesus has taken the throne of David, and now all kinds of people come into the kingdom by faith, not just Jews, but Jews and Gentiles. And James says that the Lord has made these things known from of old. This should not have been a surprise. This was the plan all along. This was always to be a reign that encompassed the nations. You and I were always a part of this plan to be rescued from our sin by free grace in Jesus and to be brought into his kingdom. So here's what James concludes. Therefore, my judgment is that we should not trouble those of the Gentiles who turn to God, but should write to them to abstain from the things polluted by idols and from sexual immorality and from what has been strangled and from blood. For from ancient generations, Moses has had in every city those who proclaim him. For he has read every Sabbath in the synagogues. So James says, quite simply, stop troubling the Gentiles who turn to God. I think we should take that, too, to heart. Don't let anyone trouble you with a false gospel. Keep your eyes fixed on Jesus. Look only to Jesus for the redemption of your sins. He is the only hope for sinners. There is only grace to be found in him apart from works of the law. So James says, stop troubling the Gentiles. That's a good word for us, too. And then James offers some wise counsel with which the rest agreed concerning Gentile Jesus followers and their witness among Jewish communities and with their unity with Jewish believers. What were the requirements? Uh, we had a good talk about this at our men's Bible study in, Gal- in Galatians on Thursday night. James says they should abstain from the things polluted by idols and from sexual immorality and from what has been strangled and from blood. So what's with that? Well, these requirements, they don't pertain to salvation because that is decidedly not the conclusion of this assembly. But I agree with uh, one paper I read that covers maybe three possibilities, and I think his conclusion is right. The Gentile Christians were being asked to refrain from activities that even resembled pagan worship, thereby avoiding even the presence of evil. In other words, for the sake of unity and for the sake of gospel witness, Here's what we're asking you to do as followers of Jesus. Here's what we're asking you to do to set yourselves apart now that you are coming into the gospel way, following Jesus and finding in him your freedom and grace apart from works. So the assembly concludes the matter here with wisdom for the Gentiles witness, but freedom for their faith in Jesus Christ as the only hope for sinners. So what happens when the assembly concludes? First, the leaders of the church, they met together to reason together about what was right. And then the leaders of the church communicated their conclusion to the churches. Representatives were sent to the churches and a letter clarifying the truth of the gospel. Its instructions were meant to foster unity in the church and to promote the witness of the church. I'll just read the contents of the letter itself so that we can hear what it says again. Starting in verse 23, The brothers, both the apostles and the elders... who themselves will tell you the same things by word of mouth. For it has seemed good to the Holy Spirit and to us to lay on you no greater burden than these requirements, that you abstain from what has been sacrificed to idols, and from blood, and from what has been strangled, and from sexual immorality. If you keep yourselves from these, you will do well. Farewell. This letter was received with joy by the churches. The truth of Scripture had been sought and willingly, they received these conclusions, these results, uh, amongst the apostles and elders as they had debated the matter. So let's ask another question. And this brings, the, the, brings us to consider the process by which this all happened. That's how the church sought the truth of Scripture uh, when they were trying to set the church straight in the middle of this first big battle for the gospel. How does the church seek the sc- truth of Scripture to that same end now, Today? The way that the church responded to and received or resolved this twisted gospel that had crept into the church, I think, is just as instructive for us as the response and the resolution of the problem itself. There are important principles in Acts 15 for how the church should function. Clearly not all churches uh, operate the same way or agree to these principles in their application, uh, and that's fine. I just want to look at these principles in Acts 15 about how the church seeks the truth of Scripture and and explain how we apply those as a Presbyterian church. So go back to verse 2 with me. In verse 2 we read, And after Paul and Barnabas had no small dissension and debate with them, Paul and Barnabas and some of the others were appointed to go up to Jerusalem to the apostles and the elders about this question. This single verse, played out in what we've already seen this morning, it gives us three principles that we put into practice as Presbyterians. First, the first principle we see is the authority of elders. The word elder here is where we get the word presbyter from. And you can see that the word presbyter is part of Presbyterianism. Elders, also called pastors or overseers, all referring to one office of the church, they govern the church. Here in Acts 15, the apostles are present with the elders, but when the apostles have passed on from the scene, it's the elders who take up the baton of leading the church. To build out a little bit of what the elders do and what we see them doing here in in Acts 15, uh, but looking elsewhere, 1 Timothy 5.17 describes this a little more clearly. 1 Timothy 5.17 says, Let the elders who rule well be considered worthy of double honor, especially those who labor in preaching and teaching. Some elders preach and teach. all elders must be able to teach, Second 2 Timothy 2:24, 2, but all elders rule. And it's important to remember that the elders who rule the church and govern the church are chosen by the people. This is, an, this is a very important role that the congregation has. Elders rule, but they are chosen by the congregation. In Acts 14.22, which kind of sets the stage for what we see in Acts 15, because elders are appointed in the churches, we read that Paul and Barnabas appointed elders, but that verb, appointed, is a word that describes a process of election. It's a process of election, maybe voting. It's a word in Greek that's used to describe this process. The same word is used later uh, in a letter from the second uh, century, the Didache. It's not scripture, but it does show us how the early church did things in the first centuries of the church. It says, appoint for yourselves, therefore, bishops, overseers, another word describing elders. Appoint for yourselves, bishops or elders, and deacons worthy of the Lord. Deacons to serve and elders to rule the church, chosen by the people. So that's the first principle we see, the authority of elders, who are convened to Decide on this matter? It's the apostles and the elders. Jesus gives authority to elders as guides chosen by the people to defend and direct the doctrine and life of his church. A second principle that we see is that there are multiple elders leading with equal authority. This is what we call the plurality or the parity of elders or the plurality and parity. All that means is that plurality, plural, there's more than one, and parity, there's no pecking order, there's no hierarchy. We call this the church session in our context, and it's multiple elders leading with equal authority. Even beyond the local church, the principle applies. All the elders of Christ's church lead with equal authority. And the way the apostles interact in Acts 15 with the elders gives us this principle. The letter that was sent from the assembly, it was sent on behalf of the apostles and the elders. They had come to a decision together about this matter. When we read apostles, maybe when you've read Acts 15 before, you think, well, they had to go to Jerusalem and talk with the apostles because they know what's what, and they're going to receive a zap of inspiration to solve everything. But that's not what happened here. The apostles clearly were inspired when they wrote Scripture, but they didn't walk around inspired. Peter is the poster boy, right? How many boneheaded decisions does Peter make? He was not inspired every time he opened his mouth, and he opens it a lot, right? What we see in Acts 15 is not a gathering of apostles that are going to just be zapped with a solution, But it's the apostles and elders, those appointed to lead the church, coming together to decide the matter for the good of the church. I think this principle, we should be very encouraged by this principle. It's one of the best gifts Jesus gave to his church. I know I wouldn't want to do this alone. And I think just even seeing the example of the false teachers that were troubling the church, it's good and common sense that putting all of your trust and hope in the leadership of one man is a very bad idea. So not only do we see multiple elders governing the church, it keeps with what we see in the Bible, it's also practical wisdom, and it's a protective blessing to the church. So that's the second principle, multiple elders with equal authority. Jesus protects his church from the failure of one man by giving many men to guide the church together, sharing equal authority. One final principle we see in Acts 15 is the regional responsibility of elders, One way to describe this is to say that our church, the PCA, uh, is one church. You may be a member of Christ Presbyterian Church, but you are a member of the church that is the Presbyterian Church in America. And the elders of the church have a regional responsibility. It goes beyond the walls of the local church. We see that in action here in Acts 15. Paul and Barnabas, they fought tooth and nail to defend the gospel, but more needed to be done. So they were appointed to take the matter beyond the walls of the local church and to have this matter decided by the wisdom of many, by the wisdom of many leaders in the region. The elders at CPC practice this principle by being involved in what's called South Coast Presbytery. It's our regional union of churches. And then, as Pastor Robert mentioned, in just a couple of weeks, a little over a week, we'll be at General Assembly. We're at the national level. Many of these things are debated and decided, seeking the truth of Scripture together. In fact, we take a vow to do this as elders in the church. Every elder in the PCA promises, Do you promise to be zealous and faithful in maintaining the truths of the gospel and the purity and peace and unity of the church? Whatever persecution or opposition may arise unto you on that account. And when that vow says church, it means beyond the walls of the local church. It's a tremendous blessing that so many men have taken that vow to seek the unity and purity and peace of the church, united as we are across many diverse congregations. If I can just say a word to elders present today, always remember that vow. Remember what you see in Acts 15 and seek the unity and the purity and the peace of the church even beyond the walls of CPC. So that's the third principle, the regional responsibility of elders. Here's where we see Jesus gives his church wisdom and accountability beyond the walls of the local church. Why take all the time to go through those principles? I know someone's asking that. What practical point or purpose could they possibly serve? We could have just stopped with the amazing good news finally decided at this uh, assembly in Jerusalem, that salvation is by faith alone, through grace alone, and Christ alone. That's a mic drop moment, and it's certainly the gospel that we need to hear this morning, right? Right? But to see how Jesus preserves the truth of the gospel through this process, through how he runs the church, it's pretty incredible. It's it's incredible wisdom and love that our Savior has for us, his church, his sheep, to structure it in a way that gives guides in the truth, that guards against one single rogue elder or this group of false teachers through multiple voices leading with equal authority and regional responsibility for the unity, the purity, and peace of the church. There's always going to be problems until Jesus returns. There will always be reasons uh, for dissension and debate and for gatherings to decide the matter. But it's important to see here the means for setting things straight, seeking the truth of Scripture. It's important to know how the church confronts error. So pray for the church as it does so. Learn a little bit more about how it works and pray for the leadership. Pray for elders in our church and in all of the churches in the PCA. Those who are called to seek the truth of Scripture together as they seek to faithfully guide the church in the truth. It's so important because it is vitally important for your life, for your, for your walk with Jesus, for your salvation, that the gospel be undiluted, sheer grace for rescuing sinners to walk in newness of life and never be twisted into something requiring your own contribution for your salvation. So pray to that end, seek scripture to that end, and praise God for how he builds his church and how Jesus promises that the gates of hell will not prevail against it. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for revealing in in it the freedom of redemption in Christ, of salvation by grace alone, through faith alone in Christ alone. We sinners know that that is our only hope for salvation. Thank you for giving us in Acts 15 principles for the right governance of the church. May all your people always seek the scriptures together, and may the leadership of the church be diligent in seeking the scriptures in order to lead well and clarify what can so easily be twisted into hopeless and harmful teaching. Build your church, Jesus. We ask it in your precious name. Amen.